Well, happy Lord's Day. It's good to be with you all together, face-to-face before the Lord in worship this morning. Have you ever been consumed entirely by something? I'm sure at least some of you have. The more smitten lovebirds among us had that experience of infatuation wherein you and your honeybee, your beloved, had eyes for no one but each other. People said those idioms of you, he only has eyes for her, she only has eyes for him. You sang that Frankie Valley song, you're just too good to be true. Can't take my eyes off of you. Completely consumed with one another. Almost as if the rest of the world didn't exist. Or maybe, to use a less nauseating example, you've been really sick before. I can think of it in in my life. Uh, my whole family decided one weekend to catch what's called the neurovirus. You can Google it after if you are unaware. It's quite disgusting. Suffice it to say, you lose a lot of things from a lot of places. And I can remember thinking to myself as I laid on my bathroom floor with the door locked, I cannot do anything but just lay here. I could hear my kids getting sick in the next room, and I thought, well, they'll be in the same position I am. They'll survive. I think Chelsea was a good soldier and actually helped them, but I couldn't do anything. You're so sick. All you can think about it once you get to a particular level of sickness is you can't think about anything else. It it consumes you, controls you. The same is true or ought to be true, of God's call in the life of his people. In both his call to conversion, when he saves us and changes everything about us, and in how he calls us to a particular vocation. Our work and the things that we do ought to be in submission to the Lord Jesus Christ. Our Christian faith ought to control our whole lives. God ought to dictate what we do. Indeed, I think that's the main idea of our passage this morning. We were in 1 Kings chapter 19, and just a few verses, verses 19 through 21, where we will consider together the call of Elisha. And what we'll learn is that God's call consumes his servants. It compels his people to behave and live in a particular way. More specifically, God's word, when it is heard by his servants, is subsequently obeyed by his servants. I've been trying recently to try to put parts of the message in a portable fashion for you to think about through the week. And so a few weeks ago, we said, uh, just keep swimming. Uh, The other week, we said we we had a a fever. Elijah had a fever, and the prescription was to meditate on the promises of God rather than just more cowbell. And this week, I think uh, I've been less creative, but it might stick with you. If you think about when God calls us, he calls us to kiss our old life goodbye. And so your little phrase to carry around with you this week when you are meditating on this particular passage is kiss it goodbye. Kiss the old man, the old life, and the old self goodbye and commit yourself to a long obedience in the same direction behind the Lord Jesus as a faithful disciple. We'll consider the passage in two parts, God's call of Elisha, and then Elisha's obedience. And I will do my best not to mix up the names Elijah and Elisha. And it's going to happen, so you'll just have to be gracious with me. Let's pray 
and we will begin our time together this morning. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would fill this place and fill us as your people with your Holy Spirit, that you would enable us by the power of your Holy Spirit to rightly understand your word. We confess that spiritual things are spiritually discerned. We confess our inability to understand and obey your word without the work of your Holy Spirit in us. And so we pray for your help this morning, Lord. Illuminate your words for us that we might walk faithfully in obedience to them. We pray that we might encounter you here together, God, as we give you worship and honor and praise. Remind us that we were once lost and have been found that indeed we have, are those who have heard from you, that you have passed by us, that as you have spoken to us, revealed yourself to us by your spirit and in your word, and indeed you have made us new in Christ Jesus our Lord. We pray that you would make us more like Jesus this morning, that you would fill us with love, joy, and peace. We ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. We are in 1 Kings, and we have been traveling a whole lot with the prophet Elijah. And remember, Elijah shows up for the first time all the way back at the beginning of chapter 17, and he shows up as a lion to confront a wicked gazelle, the man, or the sorry excuse for a man, named Ahab, who one pastor said, squatted upon the throne of Israel, a terrible toad of a man. It's a good image of Ahab. Ahab uh, plays the role of someone who is pliable based on who he is talking to. And so we find him obeying Elijah's instructions to go to Mount Carmel in one scene and obeying Jezebel's instructions to uphold Baal worship in another. Ahab is a wicked man. He walks in the ways of his father Omri, who was also a wicked king, and who also walked in the ways of Jeroboam, the initial king of the northern kingdom. Remember, in the book of Kings, David has passed away. Solomon had ascended to the throne. Solomon gave himself up not to the Lord, but to foreign gods. He was led astray by guns, gold, and girls. And as his foreign wives turned his heart toward foreign gods, he led Israel down a terrible path of idolatrous worship. God's judgment has come on the people of Israel, so the once united monarchy is now split into two. You have ten tribes in the north, and then Judah in the south. And so from chapter 12 or so, we've just been, you've bounced sort of back and forth. Here's a king in the northern kingdom, this is what he did. Here's a king in the southern kingdom, this is what he did. Thing is, the north has a lot more kings because it's a lot more wicked than the southern kingdom. And so we have been in the northern kingdom a long time, considering those northern kings. The northern kingdom is just called Israel. And Ahab is the most wicked of the wicked. He is the one who is on the throne in Israel. He seeks not just to syncretize religions, not just to have false gods sitting next to Yahweh, but to replace Yahweh with Baal. So Elijah shows up, and he tells Ahab that it is not going to rain until he says the word. Indeed, he informs Ahab that the covenant curse of drought will come, and indeed it does. Drought comes upon the land, and Elijah hides by the brook Cherith, where God feeds him with food from ravens and allows him to drink from the brook. There's symbolism that's loaded in that particular scene, if you remember. God is not just withholding the rain that gives life to the land. He is withholding his word that gives life to the people. The bearer of his word is nowhere to be found. He's hidden by the brook Cherith. The covenant curse of drought dries up eventually that brook such that Elijah can no longer drink from it. And so God provides for Elijah not by way of unclean birds, but through the table of an unclean Gentile widow. 
he moves Elijah to the land of Zarephath, where this woman believes his word by faith and bakes for him bread day after day and discovers day after day that her jar and jug of ingredients always has just enough for that day's need. Finally, we learn after about three and a half years, God tells Elijah it is time to confront Ahab at Mount Carmel. And so Ahab comes to Carmel with Elijah, and there is a big showdown. This is probably the most famous portion of Kings. They're there on Mount Carmel. It's Baal's mountain. Yahweh's playing an away game, if you will. And Elijah says, you guys can go first. You will build your altar. You will put your sacrifice on it. Then will be my turn. I'll build my sacrifice. There's like 400 plus of you, and then I'm here by myself. I'll build my own altar, put a sacrifice on it, and then we will call out. You can call out first. And whoever's God answers by fire is the real God. And so you have that pretty comical scene where the prophets of Baal call out all morning. They're pretty ecstatic. They're heaping up words and phrases, having a real emotional experience. They're cutting themselves. Oh, Baal, answer from heaven. We read famously that no one answered. No one was there. My kids always love that Elijah mocks them. Oh, maybe Baal's on vacation or he's using the restroom. He's otherwise occupied. He'll he'll be back, I'm sure, in a minute. Finally, it comes to be Elijah's turn, and he says, you know what, I'm going to up the ante a little bit. Let's dump what little water we have all over my altar and sacrifice, such that the trench around it is filled with water. And then he simply prays, and God answers with fire. There is no doubt about who God is. The people fall face down and they say, the Lord, he is God. Elijah tells Ahab to eat. It's a symbolism of a covenant renewal that we're hoping for. That the people will now be at peace with God once more and enjoy not covenant curses, but covenant blessing. Elijah prays for the rain seven times persistently. And then finally, a small cloud comes across the horizon. Eventually, that cloud waters the land. Things look really good. You'll remember Elijah is singing, Ooh, child, things are going to get easier. He's, He's running supernaturally fast in front of the chariot, and we see God's prophet and God's king together. They're going to the, his summer home where that monster Jezebel waits in his bedroom. There's a moment in time we think that God's king is going to obey God's word that's spoken by God's prophet, and God's prophet's going to work hand in glove with God's king. But then God's king, Ahab, that pliable man, goes and speaks with Jezebel. She is a vile woman, and we find ourselves surprised by her stubbornness. She does not turn to the Lord our God, but instead doubles down on her Baal worship and puts a price on Elijah's head. We talked about how hard faithfulness is. Elijah flees for his life and lays down beneath a broom tree. And he asks that God might kill him. Not because he's so afraid he just wants to die, but because he feels as if his whole ministry has been a failure. Because the people have not repented. Remember, we said Elijah's wrong here that our version of success is a poor index for faithfulness or success. His ministry was quite faithful, and it accomplished what God willed for it to accomplish, despite the fact that the people remained hardened in their sin. God came to Elijah in his despair as he felt a failure and felt the weight of having a price upon his head. He's at that broom tree and the angel of the Lord shows up and gives him a Cinnabon and some Gatorade. And that sustains him for the trip that God would have him take to Mount Sinai, also known as Mount Horeb, what we've also called just Mount Covenant. Elijah goes back to Mount Sinai and he sort of steps into the shoes of Moses. Remember, Moses has passed by the Lord there, and the Lord's going to show him his glory. And the Lord doesn't actually show him much. He speaks to him. He tells him his name. 
the Lord, the Lord, right? Elisha has a very similar experience. He stands on that mountain where Moses stood, and the Lord passes him by, and the Lord's not in the tremors of the earthquake. He's not in the winds of what might have been a mighty gale or a tornado. The Lord is not even in the fire and lightning that sound outside. No, all of that fades away, and we learn that the Lord is in this deafening silence, this low whisper. I love the old King James, the still, small voice. That's where the Lord is. And the Lord invites Elijah to speak to him. What happens is Elijah has come to Mount Covenant to bring covenant charges against God's people. And so he brings the charges before the Lord. He says, I've been a faithful prophet, but the people have not turned. They tear down your idols. They despise your name. They worship false gods. He's basically asking the Lord, Bring upon them the judgment they deserve. And the Lord says, you're right. He says, I will. This is what you are to do, Elijah. Verse 15 of chapter 19. And the Lord said to him, go. Return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazel to become king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be the king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel-Meholah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazel shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. God is going to bring judgment, and he's sort of given Elisha an object lesson. He's going to bring judgment, but it's not going to be with a spectacular action of an earthquake or of a tornado, or of fire from heaven. No, no, no. God's going to bring judgment to this people through the ordinary, everyday machinations of politics and his prophet. God is going to bring about his will in a subtle and quiet way. We remember that God is always at work, even if he might not be shouting loud enough for us to hear. He's working even when all seems silent. And so Elisha leaves from Mount Covenant. He goes to anoint Elisha to replace him. And the big picture here in Kings, which we're going to stray away from to look at the details here, the big picture here is that God's servants die, but God's message marches on. God's word from beginning to end is the main character. In the mightiest of God's prophets, well, they might be taken up to heaven in chariots of fire. But God's message remains. God's word works. It works out God's will in the world. There's a good application for us. I think sometimes we tend to wrap our hopes for Christianity's success in the world around celebrity pastors or celebrity leaders. And then oftentimes we find ourselves quite crushed when they fail or when they are revealed to be not so Christian after all. Or when they simply die and pass on from the scene. Alarmism, what will will the church do now? (laughs) The same thing that she's done for 2,000 years. Continue grow, continue to be built up. Jesus will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Our favorite leaders might go one way, but God's word will continue on. God's will in the world will get done. So friends, we ought not put our hopes and those who bear God's word, but in God's word, in God himself, in the word made flesh, the Lord Jesus Christ. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and his righteousness. Not my favorite Christian leader, 
not even the prophet Elijah. Indeed, Elijah will go away, and Elisha will replace him. God's word will go on. It must go on. And so Elijah moves to anoint Elisha. Look with me at verse 19 of chapter 19. That makes it easy to remember. So Elijah departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen in front of him. And he was with the 12th. Elijah passed by him and cast his cloak upon him. Elisha's name means my God saves, and his father's name, Shaphat, means judgment. We sort of have a picture of Elisha's ministry for us in those two names, do we not? Elisha will be a weapon of God's judgment and justice in the world, and he will also offer a message of salvation to all who will hear and believe. He's going to become a great prophet, but what I want to point out to you here doesn't immediately meet the eye. Elisha is also a great farmer. He, he is a wealthy farmer. I mean, 12 yoke of oxen is kind of a big deal. And it's not as if God has no idea where Elisha is at prior to his call to supplant Elijah. Elisha is doing just what he is supposed to do, farming. He's called to be a farmer. I bring this up because I think there is this weird instinct, even now in evangelicalism and in churches like ours, to divide up work in the world. There's work that matters to God. That's what pastors do. And then there's work that just sort of is and doesn't matter to God. That's what farmers do and filers of files. I think that's a mistake. God calls you to do the work that you are doing. It is not as if God's plans and purposes for your life don't include your job. This whole idea of vocation comes from uh, our idea of calling. What you do, in terms of your work, is what you are called to. And part of how you bring glory to God, part of how you fulfill God's purposes for you, is through the work that he has given you. Whether you are a receptionist, or a plumber, or a logger, or a doctor, or a mechanic. God has given you that work to do, and he's given it to you to do for his glory. Elisha here honors God as a farmer. He's doing good work. It's not as if God says, oh, give up that terrible job of farming. That's not good work. I need you to get to work for me, to do the real work that has real value to the kingdom of God. I'm sure he's going to change his job description. Elisha's going to bring glory to God in a different way. But he's bringing glory to God as a farmer. He's doing good work faithfully to the Lord. Love what John Calvin says on this in his Institutes. All vocations are not only pleasing to God, but are also holy. Do you ever think about that? Your job is holy. It's been set apart. It should be offered to God. All vocations are not only pleasing to God, but are also holy. Everyone, therefore, has his own kind of dignity and is, in a manner, consecrated to God. For God assigns to each individual his proper post, 
that everyone may not only be contented with his lot, but also know that it is assigned to him by God. And so pursue his calling, that's your job, not anxiously or from the impulse of curiosity, but with a settled disposition and with a perseverance that is not to be shaken. Friends, your job, your work is part of God's plan for your life. Do it to his glory. What you do is full of meaning. Don't be silly and devalue it because, well, the pastors, they're the only ones who really work for the Lord. No, your work is for the Lord. I'm going to give you two passages to sort of help you think about this throughout the week. One comes from Ephesians 2, and there's just so much great theology in Ephesians 2. You can just take some time and maybe read the, even just the first 10 verses and meditate on those this afternoon. But you'll remember the first few verses talk about how we are dead in sin, without hope and without God in the world. And then there's the shift, but God, because of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive in Christ. So we have a picture of conversion or being moved from death to life. And then in verse 10, Paul is talking about what God has for us. And this is what he says in verse 10 of Ephesians chapter 2. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Here's what I want to point out to you. The good works there include the good work that you do at work. Or maybe a little bit more explicit, Colossians 3, verse 17, and then verses 23 through 24. I've smashed them together a little bit for you. This is what we hear. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord, you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Do not view your job or your work in retirement or whatever ministry you have your fingers in as anything less than work that is offered to God and is holy to God. You are serving the Lord Christ. Christ. Friends, do not look at your job as a burden, but as a holy blessing from God, a place from which you can honor him by doing good work. You have a holy calling. Your work is not outside the sphere of God's plan for your life. Honor God in the work that he has called you to until he calls you to different work. Then honor him there. It's precisely what happens to Elisha. He's a faithful farmer. He's doing good work. And then he's called to go from, you might not think of it, this glamorous life of a farmer, he's pretty wealthy, to the sort of ignominious life of a prophet. God changes his life. We are to obey, not only in the work we have, but in the work God calls us to next. Look how God calls Elisha. Elijah departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen in front of him, and he was with the 12th. Now, Elijah passed by him and cast his cloak upon him. Love this. God knows exactly where Elisha is. He finds him plowing the oxen. Comes to him. And then he passes him by. This would normally be sort of a throwaway line, but I don't think it is right here. I think when we read he passed him by, the bells should go off a little because what did we just see in verse 11 in chapter 20? Elisha on the mountain of covenant, and God passed by. 
makes us think of Moses, who God passed by. And in all of these instances, God passes by and he speaks his word. And we see that the one to whom he's speaking is going to uniquely bear his word and his presence. I think part of what we're supposed to recognize is that Elisha is going to be like Elijah. Elijah, God's representative, passes him by and cloaks him with his mantle. He puts the mantle of his cloak on him. The idea is that Elisha is going to be like Moses before him and like Elijah before him. He is going to bear God's word to God's people. He's going to hear God's word and speak God's word and obey God's word. Lastly, we see what might seem odd to us. Elijah casts his cloak upon him. Now, can you imagine, you know, you're out, you're a farmer, you're, you're on your John Deere tractor, it's 12 ox power. I don't know if that would be very much or not. I don't, really not into the farming game much myself. But you're, you're chugging along on your plower, and all of a sudden, I'm Jeremiah caught that. Anyhow, <laughs> you're chugging along, and then some stranger comes, and he grabs your cloak and throw his cloak and just throws it over top of you and keeps on moving. Like, you're going to have some questions. And we're going to get there in a second. Elisha does run up to Elijah. He catches up to him. But the questions he asks aren't questions we would ask. Right? We would be like, what are you doing? What on earth? I don't want this cloak. What? Do you, what? I don't understand. No, Elisha's going to ask if he can throw a party before he follows Elijah the rest of his life. How? Well, he understands what this cloak represents. You see, the prophet's cloak was a sign of the prophet's occupation. So that throwing the cloak onto Elisha is a symbol of his call to the prophetic office. So the tool, in this case a cloak, symbolizes the occupation. Be similar to a doctor coming up and throwing his stethoscope around someone's neck. Or a builder handing someone a hammer. Or maybe you're out in the woods and a logger hands you an axe and then points to the tree. This tool symbolizes the profession. Elisha understands that he has been called. This is a surprising call. It's not like Elisha was driving along his oxen and thinking, you know, it'll be awesome prophet will come by, the great Elijah throws cloak on me, and I'll, I'll give all this up, and my whole life will change today evermore. No, he's just, he's just doing his job. And then he's surprised. God so often calls us in surprising ways. His sovereignty is often wrapped in the sudden he, he does. He's, there's all kinds of surprising ways that God calls us. We have examples in our own congregation. One of my favorites is David. Uh, he, I don't think, ever imagined. I mean, did you ever imagine being a pastor, David? That's a, hedge, that's a no, right? And I can remember years ago uh, coming to David and sitting down with him and, and saying, like, David, I think that you would do well as an elder here at Rockfish Valley Baptist Church. And his response was really fun. He said, I want to do whatever God wants me to do. But you need to know, when I used to have to get up in front of people when I was in grade school, I took zeros. Right? Te- te- teaching, publicly especially, not my lane. And yet, he's a pastor here. Many of you have joined me in seeing him preach his daughter's wedding best friend's funeral. He's opening up God's word to us here. I think Mike's probably the same way. He just got guilted into being a Sunday school teacher one week and then it was all downhill from there. God somehow puts us right where he wants us to be. He sometimes calls us to do work and things that surprise us. 
And, you know, the truth is we shouldn't really be surprised as Christians. Really, when you think, when you think about your conversion, that should surprise you, first of all. And then secondly, it sort of sets the course for what you can expect God to do with you the rest of the way. He's going to be faithful. He's going to bring you to himself. And he's going to have you do things you never thought you would do. Really, we've all had an Elisha-type experience when it comes to our conversions. Elijah, Elisha, was found. Isn't that true of you, Christian? You were found. Think of Jesus' parable in Luke 15. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Isn't this our story, Christian? We were running and straying in the dark without God and without hope in the world, but Jesus Christ sought us and bought us with his redeeming blood. He came to us and he grabbed us, threw us on his shoulder, and brought us safely home, and there was rejoicing at our repentance. We all were once lost, but because of God's gracious kindness, we have been found like Elijah was found. Indeed, those who belong to the good shepherd, well, when he passes them by, speaks to them, they know his voice. John 10, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. And they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. Jesus finds us, he speaks to us, and because of his work in us, we hear and obey. We know the voice of our shepherd. Get sort of a picture of this in Mark chapter 2 with the calling of Matthew, who's also called Levi, and I really think if there were a parallel to Elisha's call, this might be it, because he too throws a party. But, but look, Jesus went out again, Mark 2, verse 13, he went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And Matthew Levi rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician. But those who are sick, I come not to call the righteous, but sinners. We were lost, we've been found, we were sick sheep, and yet we heard the voice of our good shepherd who lays his life down for us. We were called home in repentance and obedience. If you're here and you're a non-Christian, you're hearing God's word today. And I pray that you would obey the voice of the good shepherd. Do you want to be found? Call out to Jesus in faith. Christian, you've been lost and found. You've been passed by and spoken to. 
and you've had the righteous garments of Christ cast upon your shoulders. Love how the CSB translates Galatians chapter 3 and verse 27, 26 first, then 27. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith because those of you who were baptized into Christ Jesus have been clothed with Christ. We who are in Christ have taken off the old man and the old way of life, and we have put on the new man. We have been clothed in the righteous garments of Christ. We have crucified the flesh and its passions, and now we walk by faith in the power of the Holy Spirit. We were found, passed by, spoken to, and cloaked. Nothing is more surprising than my conversion and your conversion. Nothing is as surprising as dead people being brought to life through Christ. Brothers and sisters, we shouldn't be surprised that the one who called us out of death and into life sometimes calls us to surprising acts of obedience. So he is. So remember your conversion. It is a source of infinite encouragement. Reminds you that God has called you to himself. And it is helpful when you think about what God might call you to do for him next. Look back to God's work in calling you to himself the first time and let that encourage you to do whatever work he calls you to the next time. The call of conversion sort of gives us a pattern in regards to our calls of vocation and ministry. God's providence, his work in the world, is pervasive. It's over all things. He's brought us to himself, and he's put us in the jobs that we are doing. And indeed, he calls Elisha to himself and to the good work of being a farmer. And now, from the work of a plowman to the work of a prophet. Look at verse 20. And he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, let me kiss my father and mother, and then I will follow you. And he said to him, Go back again, for what have I done to you? And Elisha returned from following him and took the yoke of oxen and sacrificed them and boiled their flesh with the yokes of the oxen and gave it to the people, and they ate. Then he arose and went after Elijah and assisted him. Interesting here. Elisha gives up everything. He asks to kiss his old life goodbye as he begins the new. And he does that because he is a faithful Israelite. He's not unfaithful in any way. This word kiss shows up only two times in Kings. And we just saw it. I think it's only two times. It's very few, and two of them come right here. Look at verse 18. Remember when God is talking about the judgment he's going to bring, he also says to Elijah on Mount Covenant, yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. We see in Elisha a man who has not bent the knee to Baal. He has not kissed the false god with his mouth. Indeed, we might say that he kisses the sun as we remember our call to worship this morning. His devotion is to the Lord, his God. He has not gone astray. Now, you might say to me, but we didn't just have a scripture reading this morning. We had, we had the call to worship, but we also had another scripture reading. And that was, I think, from Luke 9. Didn't Jesus say, 
that the person that tries to go back to his family is in the wrong? You remember? Let's read that. Luke chapter 9, verse 57. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, Follow me. But that man said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Is Elisha wrong? Lest we wrongly color Elisha with sinful hues here, we need to consider the context of Luke 9. Jesus is speaking to a group of people who are looking to make excuses to delay discipleship. He's speaking to people who are double-minded disciples. They want to follow him, but they don't want to do it right now, and they don't want to make Jesus a priority in their lives. That is not Elisha in 1 Kings 19. See that, that last line in Luke. The one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back, you know, just looking over his shoulder to his old life, hand on the plow, is not fit for the kingdom of God. Really is interesting. What does Elisha do with his plow and his equipment? Well, he, he turns it into a fire. And he cooks the oxen on top of it. He's decided to follow Jesus, right? No turning back. He is obedient and faithful. In Luke 9, saying goodbye is an obstacle to obedience. For Elisha, saying goodbye is a catalyst for obedience. He's a little bit like Matthew Levi that we read about earlier, right? He gets saved and then he throws a party. He's sort of bidding farewell to the old life of a tax collector. And that's what Elisha is doing here. He's telling his family and friends and whoever comes to this feast goodbye. They're bidding him farewell as they eat some, what I was sure just had to be delicious steak, maybe some barbecue. Who knows what they did with it? But they cooked it up. I just love, it's easy to miss here. He uses the, like the yoke, the thing that, I guess that's the thing that joins the animals together. Right? He uses that to start the fire. He's like burning the tools of his trade which the animals probably could function as tools too, but he's getting rid of all of it. He takes, metaphorically, his old life and he sets it ablaze. God has called him somewhere new and he will be faithful. Brothers and sisters, are you willing to obey God like that? He gives up everything to obey a command that is not immediately glamorous, comfortable, or easy. I mean, he goes from being like CEO, wealthy farmer, to being Elijah's assistant. He's going to do awesome things as a prophet in 2 Kings. But the thing he's known for initially in 2 Kings is that he used to pour water over Elijah's hands. It's a fun way of saying he was his sort of servant. He's going to stoop and do lowly work as he follows the Lord. What? He has to reorder all the priorities of his life. What are your priorities? Is there something in your life that you sort of put in a silo and say, God can't touch this. This is important. I'm in control of this. Are you willing to obey God even in that silo? Elisha obeys God because obeying God is always worth it. Because God is worthy of our complete, full-throated obedience. How can we not follow God? The God 
He loved us enough to send his son to die for us in our place for our sins. How can we not love him with every ounce of blood in our bodies? How can we not give our whole lives to the one who has defeated death so that if we obey him in faith, we too can have the confidence that we will be made like him in resurrection? How can we hold anything back? We must be those who set our old lives on fire and who follow Jesus because he's worth it. Because we were once lost and we have been found. We were once blind and now we see. Because we are those the good shepherd has spoken to and now we know his voice and we follow it. Because we have been made new, cloaked in Christ. Friends, let us be a people who give to God the obedience of which he is worthy. God's call should consume us. Are you consumed? Be like Elisha. Go all in on obeying God's call. Right wherever he has you right now, and to whatever surprising things he might call you to next. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your people, for this church. We thank you for your kindness to us, giving us faith to believe your word and in calling us together as your people to worship you here. We pray that you would help us to honor you in all that we do that you would keep us from ever getting over grace, ever getting over the good news of Christ crucified for sins and raised for justification. Set our eyes not on this world, but on the city that is to come. Lord, we love you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.